0: Hello, this is Pixelated Playgrounds, a monthly gaming book club podcast discussing the art and craft of video games. I'm Brian Skersha.
1: I'm Josh Galecki. And I'm Clint Jones.
0: And today we're talking about Return of the Obra Dinn, developed by Lucas Pope and released for Mac OS and Windows in October of 2018. Uh, it had ports for Switch, PS4, and Xbox One released about a year later. And just a heads up right up top, this is an imminently spoilable game. So if you're planning on playing this, just a heads up, there will be spoilers. Press pause, go play this game, it's amazing. So, we're a little late here. Uh, I've wanted to play this game for a while. Uh, it's been on my want to playlist since so oh, roughly 2018, and uh, it actually showed up in my list on our website too in, in, in that same vein at the end of 2018. But, uh, having just gotten around to it in 2020, uh, I think I can speak first us all when I say I'm glad I finally got around to playing this freaking game.
2: Yeah, same here. I've, it's been sitting in my backlog for years, and unfortunately it's one of those like gems that I've been holding back for no apparent reason, so I'm glad we finally got
1: around to it. I will say that looking at the trailer for this game, and even for the first maybe 15, 20 minutes, I wasn't particularly impressed with it, but the game really got its hooks into me. Ended up liking it, the game immensely.
0: Yeah, I mean, go figure. Like, this is a game that won awards at IGF, and you know, actually the grand prize there, as well as Best Art Direction in the Game Awards for 2018. So, you know, people are onto something when they say this game is really good and has really cool gameplay, a, a neat art style, and a pretty gripping narrative once you start getting into it. And uh, yeah, I, like you said, it, it definitely panned out that way for me. It right off the top just. It has such a novel mechanic, and the mystery really starts to grab a hold of you. Um, it, it's got a really impeccable sense of style, too.
2: Yeah, all of his games do. Have you guys played Papers, Please? I believe mm-hmm, yeah. this about their big game, yeah.
0: Yeah, Lucas Pope, uh, I guess he sort of came onto the scene uh, because of Papers, Please in a big way. But he's worked in the industry for a long time. Like He actually had jobs on Uncharted 1 and 2 uh, with Naughty Dog. So you could see where he gets some of his narrative chops with that. And then um, I was even aware of some of his earlier indies, uh, Helsing's Fire, which is an iOS game, is something that I played a little bit of back in the day, too. So this guy's been around a while, but, you know, he's he's out in a big way now with uh, Papers, Please, and now uh, Oberdin. Yeah,
2: because he did both of those on his own, correct?
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, Papers, Please, and Oberdin were both sort of solo endeavors for him, or maybe just very limited help. But, um, you know, he I listened to some interviews of this guy, and he just seems like hes he's got it figured out in terms of his uh, design strategy, and he just, he knows how to think about designing a game. and It's very enlightening to listen to him talk about it.
1: Fun little fact, a uh, little personal connection with this is that Papers, Please wa- came out of a Ludum Dare ga- game jam. It's one of the only two that I've participated in. The one that Papers Please came out of was the um, the theme for that game jam was tiny worlds, uh, and he chose to take that as a you're stuck in a toll booth, and that's your entire world for the video game. Uh, really interesting to see something come from a game jam, you know, like a forty eight hour make a game sort of thing, and evolve into something so good.
0: Absolutely. You could tell that this was sort of iterated on in a, in a huge way. Uh, I, and listening to like from where it started off to where Oberdin finally ended up, um, the stories on the localization of this game are particularly enlightening uh, because it is so um, grammatical and, you know, I guess it relies a lot on parts of speech for the, you know, the determination of uh, the, the mystery. Uh, it sounds like localization just totally... Uh, like, really owned him on this game because he wasn't thinking about gendering and verbs and structure and hmm. you know how that v- varies across languages.
2: Yeah, this was one of the biggest pieces for me. Like, y- you take some of these big, high production value games, like, let's talk, like, maybe Ob- Oblivion, right? Th- there were 5,000 some odd characters and they did it with five voice actors
0: and
1: it was
2: <laughs> terribly annoying. But uh, this game had 60 characters and there were 60 unique voice actors and they were all. Um, correctly uh, localized to their region that the character was from. And it was to the point where if you knew those um, specific um, dialects, you could pick where these people were from and it would be correct. It's the first game I've ever seen where that's been the case.
1: So taking a kind of broader look at the game, uh, how this goes is there's the ship Obra Din that has returned to harbor with everyone aboard dead. Uh, and as a responsible insurance company agent, you're sent there to investigate what happened to the Overdin. Um What happens is you get this magical pocket watch that lets you go back and look at a death scene and see what happens. The primary mechanic in the game is trying to deduce what characters you see, who they are, what they died from, and perhaps who killed them. Um, and you use a range of things to do this, but one of the ones we were just talking about is like the accents of the characters or what languages they're using. You can use that to say, oh, this guy's Russian. So that narrows me down to maybe three or four crewmates who might who are from Russia. Yeah,
2: basically you're, you're flow from Progressive in this game and you're going there with your magic price gun and figuring out what happened <laughs> on this ship. <laughs>
0: yeah, it, you, you sort of start off with just a ton of unnamed people who you're charged with identifying. Uh, and I think that's the harder part, because it's pretty obvious, usually how someone dies, you know, a couple exceptions there, but determining identities is sort of the the main problem here. And it becomes basically like, I'm um, Sherlock Holmes doing Sudoku with these 60 passengers trying to figure out, you know, who's who and how they died. Uh, it's pretty, it's an interesting concept. And yeah, where they they kick you out of the the little lifeboat onto the Oberdin with not but your pocket watch and a logbook that came from uh, ostensibly a uh, a person somehow related to the ship, and say, all right, figure it out. You have no information. <laughs>
2: <laughs> that was kind of fun though. I kind of like that. Uh, this reminded me a lot of like the old old you know pu- puzzle games from when we were kids. Now obviously th- this was a little more complex, but it took the same stylistic approach. It took the same, like, basic idea. Like, old games like Mist and things like that. Carmen Sandiego, things, things of that nature.
0: Yeah, it requires a lot more lateral thinking than mystery games that you'd see uh, in more recent years. Like, usually games in the, the adventure and mystery frame will continue to advance as long as you progress, regardless of whether you actually figure out what's going on. This game very much ties its progression to you knowing what happened, which is an interesting thing. You know, when you get your Momentum Mortem, the the pocket watch slash compass, I thought it was a compass, uh, that Josh mentioned, Um, you can go up to a corpse and play back the final moments before a person's death. And it allows you to explore the area that is frozen in time at the moment that they died. And you can see who was present and other visual details in order to determine who they are and how they died.
2: Yeah, and one of the coolest things about that, it wasn't just what you saw. This was one of the few games where what you heard was equally, if not more important than what you could see in front of you. And there were several times that I was able to solve out what happened and who who people were just based on what I was hearing and not what I was seeing.
0: Yeah, that was sort of my first... The first clues that I found myself picking up on in this game, and that's another interesting thing is everyone will go about this a different way, but my first clues were... Um, audio of passengers talking to each other and i was trying to pick out names and how they referred to each other whether it was like as a a superior or as a subordinate um most importantly names obviously but that's the basic loop you know you find a corpse you hear the audio of their death uh, and it's full screen subtitles so it really forces you to pay attention to what's being said then you get the impression of the moment of their death you draw any conclusions and sometimes you can do a corpseception and go into a corpse within the memory of your already dead corpse.
2: <laughs> See, this is the one part I didn't like because when you, every time you did that, I felt like some of them just chained off each other so much. Like I was trying to work out what I'd just seen and it was already blasting me into another scene. And I'm like, wait a minute, I wasn't done processing that. I needed to take some notes.
1: So going back to that, I think an interesting thing from game design is. That is one of the reasons it was so easy to keep on going with it. Um, this game was hard to put down uh, once it got you got into it. And even though it was frustrating a lot of the times, because I see a death scene and it plays out, you have a limited time to go through it. And then after 30 seconds or a minute or whenever the awesome music, music is great in this game, after the music ends, then you have to go to the next corpse in that scene, like the next dead body, and kind of continue on with the story. Um, but it forces you to do that. It doesn't let you replay the memory until after you go to the next corpse. Um, but once you're you're doing this corpseception thing, it uh takes you from on the kind of the main boat where you are with everybody dead in the present time and there's this glowing ball of light you have to follow that leads you right to the next corpse and right to the next memory and although it was frustrating that i couldn't go back and replay the memory immediately now that i kind of got a handle on what's going on um it also made it very easy to keep on going because the next time you can really stop you're right there at the at the next point
0: Yeah, I think it's pretty cool, too, how, generally speaking, the game walks you backwards through a series of events. Um, you you come into this scene, and, like, there's a bunch of dead people around and complete chaos on the deck, and you're like, how the hell did this happen? And then slowly but surely, as you corpseception, you go back to the inciting incident of the event and get to see how it all started.
2: Yeah, I was just about to bring that up. So, like, this is separated into chapters. There's, like, different main events, and everything's kind of put into chapters. And almost always, you start at the end of the chapter and work your way back so it really makes you stretch your mind because you have no context for anything until the end so it really makes you think about things in a
1: different context the game did a great job with the non-linear storytelling for sure um there were some great moments uh you know one of the things i think really struck me about this game was you start off you're an insurance agent And I'm like, this is pretty damn boring that I'm an insurance agent. I can't imagine what would happen. And then there's this like, there's a first clue that things might be a little more fantastical than that. When you're trying to pin down this, uh, the cause of death of a guy who just got shot by the captain, like this is very clear. It's the first death scene you see, and they're showing you the mechanic. There's a guy pointing a gun that's in the process of firing at a guy who's getting a bullet going through his head you're like okay this guy got shot but then it's asking you to pin down the cause of death and it's like he could be stabbed he could be swallowed by a terrible beast he could be shot by foreign officers poisoned electrocuted frozen you know it's like oh this um there's more there's a, yeah, there's more a lot, more a lot going on here
0: <laughs> and the the perils of the journey that happened throughout the course of your Uh, discovering the various ways people die is I think the highlight of this game like it starts off uh, like you said it's straight up humans murdering humans and then all of a sudden you got a kraken and you got giant crabs and you got mer people and mutiny and even just cargo falling on people like there's all kinds of crazy stuff going on here and like the first time you see that kraken like tentacle coming up out of the water it's just like oh damn there's this is gonna be some (laughs) some crazy shit going down on this boat
2: (laughs) Yeah, I had no idea that there was going to be like supernatural elements to this game, but but yeah, for for sure that that first sequence, things are pretty clear what happened. And they, they kind of give you, like, the first three. Like, you can pretty easily work it out. But then it is never that easy again throughout the entire game. Like, there, you have to have every piece of information to solve it, right? So you have to have who who this person is, how they died, and if someone else killed them, who killed them. And you're almost always sitting on one or two pieces of that information. And the third is super obscure. And some of those, even the ones that you'd see at the beginning, you couldn't solve till the end.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, early on, I found myself knowing a tons of methods of death and and having no idea who any of these people are, like you said. So, you know, it's weird that after about, you know, I had only completed about 15 of the fates. And that's at the point at which I had seen every single scene uh, before the the epilogue scene. And the game offers you to get off the boat. And so you can you can leave having completely, you know, mostly unsolved the game. Um, I, of course,
2: you made it to the end with only 15
0: oh yeah i was like i'm, I'm just I'm, i need to see all the info before i start making some crazy huh. guesses here so <laughs> so
2: i took a slightly different approach so th- this game makes you solve things in three and they won't tell you if you're right or wrong uh they only let you know once you have three of them completely right in the book it will um say yep you got these three right and it'll officially write write it in, in ink into the book um so I had a way of spamming it where I found, like, the, <laughs> the most obscure piece I, when I knew that I had two good ones. Like, I was, like, 99% sure. I just, like, spammed that third one. It worked out pretty well. It's not necessarily what they
0: intended, but it worked. I mean, that's that's kind of, like, one of the only ways I found to determine who, like, the three generic English seamen were. Mm-hmm. Uh, English seamen. Um, wow. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, yeah. Uh, it basically I, I knew I had two right and I was like all right one of these dudes is going to be this guy's name so I just did what you did and used some degenerate strategy to determine who actually murdered this guy.
2: Well some of them had to be solved that way like they flat out said through deduction is the only way you'll be able to solve some of these like flat out there's just no other
1: way to know. I will agree with that critique of the game uh, the deduction system if it's very unique to the game very interesting it asks you to piece together a lot of pieces of information the character's accent uh who they hang out with how they resp- like um if they're being addressed with terms of respect or not um what clothes they're wearing what uniform they're wearing like uh, where you see them coming out of like oh this guy's coming out of the carpenter's shop Probably, it might be the captain. It's
2: it's the way they speak too. Like it it was like some of these guys sound more rough around the edges, and you just know like that's not
1: a captain or
2: an officer speaking. That's 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 somebody that works below decks.
0: You never been on a farm, Charlie.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Even with that though, I feel like one of the weaknesses was you know I'd narrow narrow down the identity of a crewmate to okay, this is one of the three uh, Russian guys over here. But then there wasn't any real way to incorporate that incorporate that information besides being like, okay, I've got two guesses, mostly right. I'm going to cycle through a bunch of options for Russians until the game confirms I got the right one.
2: There were ways you just didn't see it. So I went online and looked things up afterwards to see, like, how would I have found some of these pieces of information out? And, like, down to sometimes they flat out say it in the book and I never like read into this too much but everybody has a crew number and some of those crew numbers are sitting like on like you can see what room they're in as to if they were an officer they would have a specific bunk but other like cots would have like numbers on them and that would be their crew number like there were pieces everywhere and that's the crazy thing like the way you found something out isn't necessarily the way that i deduced it because there's like 10 pieces of information and you just have to find two
0: yeah like we talked up top about like very obvious context clues like you killed my brother and then you (laughs) see where that dude is killing someone and you determine it's other person's brother but then like clint you were saying there's environmental clues as well and down to like even the stuff that the characters are wearing you know there's a few different factions is what i think of them as in in the actual crew there's the officers the stewards the midshipmen the top men the seamen the passengers um and you know you can you can determine like a lot about you can you can basically write off an entire, you know, 90% of the options for who a person is just by knowing their uniform.
2: Yeah. Yeah, like the stewards, once they figured that out, they all seem to have the same uniform. I mean, some of these guys don't like the midshipmen. They all were wearing different things. But officers, that's easy. They got the fancy fucking hat.
1: Fa- fancy hats. Officers.
2: <laughs> yeah, done. <laughs> Although, some of those officers lost their hats halfway
1: through, so... Oh, man. Plot thickens right there (laughs) yeah
0: Yeah. um but no it's it's pretty neat and like you start to also determine who people are based on the relationships they have like um the stewards are usually found near their corresponding officer the the russians all hang out together so you can determine who they are by that way um or even like sort of meta plot things like the mutineers will often be seen together, like the people that planned, planned the mutiny and the the stealing of the treasure on the boat.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, but you have to figure all that out before you can even understand that there's a correlation there too, which is the coolest part. Like, and again, because you start at the beginning or at the end with no context, you slowly build that up over time. You get You almost have no assumptions because there's nothing to assume, which is kind
0: of cool. Yeah, it's pretty. It's pretty interesting. the the way the number of ways that he ensured that you had information available to you to make a determination was something that I think is underrated about the complexity of the design of this game. And hearing Lucas Pope talk about how he did that, he basically built a tool that showed when certain clues about who was who came into the story and mapped it out in sort of a graphic format. Right, so he could see like when you were able to determine uh, who a character was so that you could always ensure that when you were, you know, looking to make that determination, you had the information available to make that.
1: That was something we, I think me and Clint came into when we were first playing, was the game would tell us, like, um when you don't have that information, and there's no chance you can determine anything, the character's face is blurred, and the different photos and sketches, or sorry, the different sketches they have of the character. Um, but then when he can be determined, the identity can be determined, then it becomes clear. And you'd look at this picture and you're like, I have no idea who the hell this guy is. What do you mean I can determine that? (laughs) But it just means like, it's possible. If he's blurred, don't even worry about it yet.
2: Yes. Some of those, again, some of those clues were like context clues. Like if you'd have searched around in those memories just enough, you might've seen a number above a bunk, or you might have seen that somebody interacted with somebody else in a certain way. And you may not have picked up on that clue at all, but he did leave enough breadcrumbs elsewhere and that was the good part of this there are no hints in this game Uh, you're pretty much left to it and if you don't figure it out well that sucks to be you man yeah you're
1: you're you're not going to beat the game (laughs) (laughs) then you go through and try random crew identities until you get them right
2: (laughs) right there's nothing else that's going to move it along and the only thing that moves the story along is you figuring out more things so you really can get stuck but he left enough breadcrumbs around to get you there by the end if you really wanted to, but not so many that it was easy.
0: But, you know, we wouldn't continue to, you know, play this game if, if it wasn't sort of also stylistic and visually appealing. And I think that's another part of this game that um, it's really unique, uh, the sort of dither-punk aesthetic is what I'm, I'm seeing it referred to as, where it's basically just black and white, and they, they use uh, a variety of dithering techniques to you know, enunciate different tones where they would normally use something like grayscale.
2: Yeah, for you fools that don't know what dithering is, like me and everybody else in America, <laughs> just imagine you're playing something on your old uh, Apple IIe computer, and that's pretty much exactly what this looks like. So,
1: I've also heard the art style referred to as one-bit where you have pixels, and the pixel is either on black or it's off white. Um, and it's creating a very unique art style, especially for this day and age, by being an entirely black and white game, but being very stylistically intense and complex as well.
2: Yeah, and they did it in a 3D space, which I've never seen this art style in a 3D space before, obviously because people used to do it by uh, you know, nature of having to do it like this, but they couldn't make 3d games back then it just looked like that because that was the only thing they could do so this was kind of a neat a neat aesthetic to see and also the cool thing was um while it looked like a macintosh game you could pick different uh you could pick i guess different uh old computers yeah 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 pretty much you could do your commodore 64 you could do your ibm computer you could do yeah all all kinds of stuff it was fun it was reminiscent of, of old school computer games it was fun
0: yeah it's definitely a striking look
1: I think, Brian, you mentioned once that Lucas Pope was inspired by some of those earlier graphical adventures um, where you just had one bit style of artwork going on.
0: The, the weird thing about this game, which is actually antithetical, uh, as he has stated himself to the way he normally develops games is the aesthetic was actually the first thing that came into this game rather than sort of a mechanical hook. So he, he had a very distinct style that he wanted to portray this game in. And, uh, it shows like that it's clearly a priority and I think that it, it works really well. Um, aside from just the visual style of this game, it also has an incredibly strong and coherent, um, you know, diegetic style, like everything works within game. No, nothing more so than like the logbook. Uh, It's actually a real physical book that you can page through. It has, you know, a foreword. it has a glossary, it has table of contents. It's, it's a real, like, it's a functional book, and you're filling it out. It's weirdly, completely overwhelming at first, but it becomes your best friend throughout the course of the game
2: yeah, you know, the weird part about listening to that interview was that that didn't even enter the development phase until like the last little portion, which I'm trying to imagine this game without that. And I'm like, how the hell would you have even organized any of these thoughts or known what was going on without <laughs> it? So I don't know what this was going to play out like before that, but I'm really glad he added it
0: no kidding like I can't imagine this game without the logbook. um you know as it's automatically filling in events uh, about the location and visual identity of the crew members that one picture where they show justice at sea and everybody's on the the page is like something I was consistently going back to the manifest in the book where I could see like who I still had to go was you know vital to me being able to actually figure this thing out
1: oh i think that that picture important thing too is like uh you're meeting 50 or so different crew members and while there's some that are more distinctive than others in terms of like their facial characteristics and whatnot um being at any time in a memory or a death scene you could take a look at a crew member and it would point to where they are on the picture and that gave you kind of like a geographical oh this is the guy who's hanging out by the top mast or something like that
2: yeah i like the way it made my brain think about these people because again you're right you meet all 60 of them up front in in that sketch and you see them here and there throughout the hours of this game and sometimes you'll go on for eight hours and you know this person you've seen them you've seen them in the picture a hundred times you've seen them here and there but you still don't know who they are or what their purpose in this world is and it's really cool when you finally get that aha moment which is like oh shit if that guy's this i know he was hanging out with this guy which means he must be this and i, I don't know it just like all it's like you're the crazy person with the uh, you, you know <laughs> the <string. laughs> with the string in the board yeah and you're like connecting all the dots i don't know it was it was fun that's what it made you feel like
0: i get gotcha. it is pretty awesome like when you get a chain reaction of realizations and you start like knocking off threes at a, at a time like i think there was like there's like the first 2 hours of this game where i got like 6 people determined and then there's like the following two hours where I got like another 20 and then the game like slowed it down and made it more difficult and then my last like 15 were pretty pretty grindy like I was really needing to revisit scenes and pay attention so there's a nice ebb and flow to that determination factor too
2: Mm -hmm. yeah I stalled out pretty hard at the beginning uh but I managed to I think I got up to 45 by the time we were finished um did you guys get all 60 I know you did Brian I did yeah you did okay cool yeah it, it was worth it it was it was definitely I didn't know if I'd be able to do it especially at the beginning because of how hard things were especially then
0: but by the end I was like determined and it was worth it I think, to, <laughs> the game does the make
1: room. you feel like a deductive badass
0: the way that it doesn't like pull any punches in terms of giving you hints or making things you know not flow with the the realism of the game or the universe that it's building makes you really like inhabit that detective lifestyle like you know batman is supposedly the world's greatest detective but i'll be damned if i ever felt like a detective in uh most of the games that he's featured <laughs> in compared to this one
2: yeah and i like that they they gave you an out like hey look if you can't finish this that's okay uh you just get off the boat you're you suck but that's okay and then like you're like and at this point you're so frustrated you're like i am getting off the boat and then you're like no i can't
1: do it hey yeah, the little boat yeah. guy's like you won't be able to come back are you sure you want to go you're like, uh, <laughs> ah, I guess I'll We can leave more. now,
0: stupid. I doubt you'll ever be able to figure it out. <laughs> yeah. Another interesting thing is, like, you're never really in any danger as the player character in this game. Like, everything that's, like, tense and intriguing about this is, like, you inhabiting the lives of people that are already long dead. So that's a weird sort of, like... That's a weird situation that games don't normally put you in. Normally, you're the you know, the one taking the actions. In this one, you are an observer. You observe, you deduce, and you report.
1: You're an insurance agent. Your life is not in danger. <laughs>
0: you interact with
2: the world in almost zero ways. I think the, the most interactive thing you ever do with the world itself is open a door. You don't search in any inside anything. You literally just look, see, hear, and write. That's it
1: which in a way makes it a lot easier or um it's not like you're searching through crates and dressers and trying to piece together like diaries which is kind of what i thought i'd be doing um your interactive object is corpses in this game and finding them in different ways and then inside the, the death scenes that's when you're doing the gameplay
2: Right, but again, there's there's no interaction with it. It's not like most games where you uh, check his pockets or look at this thing, now roll him over and look at that. Literally what you see is what you get. There is nothing outside of just looking at the scene around you and listening to it and figuring out what you can deduce just from that.
0: Yeah, the interesting thing about... Uh, the way the, the world is constructed and how you interact with it is, you know, you're on a boat and the various decks actually open up over time, but they don't open up like Clint was saying by finding a key or like determining how to open a latch somewhere or something like that. When you see a memory that refers to a new deck or new level, the door opens to it in the present where you are doing your investigation so the game does expand its play space over time but it doesn't require you to get like a lock and key system going to do it which i really liked i think it's a very clean way of doing this
1: It the game has a non-linear story but it's very linear in its progression um you aren't able to choose which scene you want to see next so much it's going to show you these in a set order even though the scenes you're seeing are all out of order it's a very um designed way to look at it.
0: That's true, but I did sort of always I did tend to revisit scenes that I had already done even before I had made my, my first pass through all of the different corpses. Like I found myself going back to the Justice at Sea scene constantly and the bunk room scene where that one guy was dying of an illness. I went back to that scene like probably more than any other one because it had all the bunk numbers and I could see what shoes the guys were wearing. <laughs> and there were twenty
2: two people in that one memory, and you're like, I wanna find them, even though some of them were just
0: like Feet sticking yeah. out from
2: beneath the yeah, I
0: don't know. It is pretty funny how everyone on this boat sleeps with a blanket over their head, <laughs> so that he didn't have to
2: animate it. Let's just say that's definitely what it was. So speaking
1: yeah. about the animations, I think one of the uh, one of the things that I found striking at the beginning was that there are no animations in this game. Um, you see the death scene; it's all a freeze frame, and this is. Very liberating in a way, I think. Um, I think back to Skyrim or something like that, where you have your generic NPC walking animation, and maybe you have five different combat animations for the entirety of the game. Because he doesn't have to animate things, you take a look at the poses, the stances these people are in, they're much more vivid, much more action-oriented than anything he could hope to accomplish on a solo indie dev budget or even with a triple a budget like people are vaulting over fences jumping off of rails you know very action kind of thing i really like that's part of it
2: yeah he did a very good job of understanding what his own uh, you know personal hurdles were going to be and what he would be able to accomplish on his own in in the amount of time he had and he found ways to make it all very evocative even with the small tool set that he did have which i it shows how much experience he has in the industry and yeah he worked on amazing games like like the uncharted games but he's not naughty dog he is one man and there's only so much that one man can accomplish on his own so i think he did a really good job with that
0: yeah a triumph of scoping for sure like this this guy had a a scope in mind and he hit it and while you know the, the target may have moved a bit over the course of the the project with the you know the logbook edition like we talked about um it really does feel like it, it never overreached. And, you know, while I'm sure it went over time for him, the, t- the point at which he chose to put this thing out into the world, it feels finished. Like, it feels like a full, complete product for sure.
1: Absolutely.
2: Yeah, the only thing that I would say that screamed I ran out of time were the... Uh... The disappearances part and that that part kind of they pissed me off like one or two in a chapter is fine but literally there's one singular chapter where he's like i don't know eight people died and i didn't yeah. feel like putting it in anywhere so you figure it out they just disappeared <laughs> and, and the answer is literally they all just fell the fuck overboard because <laughs>
1: <laughs> now some of those i was able to get beforehand like there's the three people who went off into the lifeboat at the beginning of the scene. And then you see three people falling off of a lifeboat. So that's fair play. But yeah, there is a lot of like, this guy probably just fell off and drowned. Yeah, Yeah. it's
0: like there's a tentacle near him. He's on the deck in a storm with a kraken. And he's not in the next scene. He probably fell overboard.
1: (laughs)
2: Speaking of which, I thought it was really nice that he was so um, lenient with the way that you said people died. Like you could say someone got speared or they got stabbed and he would accept either. Or like they fell overboard or they expired or something or they drowned like you could say any of those three things because again when you don't it doesn't validate singles it validates things in threes i did not want to get hung up on like some specific wording the way he would have worded it like he left it open-ended enough that clearly you knew what was going on but it wasn't
0: like punitive to the player yep uh he, he lucas pope definitely ensured that there was some wiggle room there and it it left it up to the player to deter or to interpret what exactly the screen or what exactly the action on the screen translated to in terms of language which is good but probably also made localization even more of a you know hellscape than it already was going to be <laughs>
1: So the last chapter in this game, it's kind of built up to a lot throughout the progress of the game. There's like chapter 8 or 9 or something called The Bargain, uh, which is the scene before that there's a Kraken attacking the ship, the scene after that, everybody's chill. I mean there's like a mutiny and an escape, but there's no Kraken, the ship's still around. And the chapter in between is called The Bargain. And I kind of felt let down by this chapter a little bit. Like, I was expecting something more than what it ended up being. What do you guys think about this one? I
0: I completely agree. I think it was almost more interesting as a mystery, like when you first exited the boat, as compared to what they finally ended up revealing, which is basically that, you know, the captain um, struck a a bargain with the last living mermaid that they had uh, imprisoned on the ship to call off the kraken if they let him go or her go. And, you know, not a ton of information was revealed. Like, it's still the same outcome. The Kraken leaves. um, (laughs) Although it was sort of a monkey's, a very obvious monkey's paw wish because. The Oberdin does make its way home. It's just five years with later. no people
2: alive hmm. on board, which is not what he was uh, intending when he made the wish. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so again, it's worth noting that the reason you honestly don't get to even see this chapter unless you get all sixty things right. If you leave early,
1: oh really? Uh, sorry, fifty-eight.
2: Yeah, sorry, fifty-eight. You determine the last two <laughs> in that chapter. Um, you don't even get to see this unless you complete the game. So I feel like there could have been more there. It was. I mean, it was intense. The guy was literally blasting mermaids in the face with a with his hand cannon, like "Call <laughs> off the Kraken, or I'm going to kill you all." I don't know. It it was interesting, but but yeah, it, it wasn't it wasn't as interesting as it could have been.
1: Fun little bit. You mentioned the monkeys, Brian, but um, that's kind of how the scene is revealed to you is that um, a monkeys a monkey was shot at that scene and that's how you get access to it because somebody sends you that monkey's hand later on and like you say they make the bargain but also everybody dies afterwards minus the four passengers who escaped
0: it's it's very on the nose in terms of you know what they're trying to go for there. A monkey's paw wish at the same time a monkey's paw flies through the window which is the the means of conveyance that gets you back to the um, boat from your comfy england home as a insurance adjuster um it's a cool way to sort of like bring the story, not full circle, but sort of boomerang you back into the action from what you thought was the ending. And with that, uh, why don't we do our three word reviews? Cool. I'll start with mine. Mine was I'm on board.
2: So for me, this game was really reminiscent of my old school puzzle games. Again, I had an Apple IIe computer in my room growing up, um, I didn't have game consoles but I did have that and I got to play a lot of those games and this reminded me a lot of those. Now obviously it was a little you know, further along in, in mechanics and styling than, uh, than that game was, or than those games were, but it really brought me back to that and I think it's what he was shooting for with this game and I think if people want to keep making games like this, I'm totally on board.
0: Agreed. Uh, My three-word review is Addition by Deduction. Uh, This game adds a new wrinkle to the mystery genre of games by forcing the player to make leaps of logic and encouraging them to take on a posture of deductive reasoning instead of simply advancing them and hoping the story pieces together uh, in their brains. Uh, The spooky supernatural ship aesthetic with paranormal happenings and flashbacks ratchet up the pressure and the foreboding atmosphere. Um... Making you feel like you're on a mission in a hostile place, while still maintaining the fact that you're just an insurance adjuster. Uh, all in all, uh, the cascade of, you know, getting solved fates in groups of three, and once you start c- clicking in those various fates, uh, as you know, you start to piece together the full mystery of this is completely addicting. Like I was immediately sold as soon as I started that cascade of of wins, so to speak. Uh, There's nothing else out there like this game right now, and I want more of it immediately.
1: (laughs) All right, my three-word review is Sinbad, Snapshot Sherlock. The two parts Sinbad because of Sinbad the Sailor from Arabian Nights, uh, who was journeyed to fantastical places, fought monsters, which... Coming in and hearing this was a game about an insurance agent I was totally not expecting but very much on board for. In the second part, Snapshot Sherlock, uh, you're doing all the deduction around these death scenes, which you can walk around and get little context clues from... All these different sources. Very cool thing to do. Rem- reminded me in some good ways about Tacoma, another kind of walking simulator that we did um, a book club on way back when, but very different approaches to it. Uh, this game was much more focused on the detective part of the mystery genre.
0: Boy, Josh, I would have been really embarrassed if I used my other three-word review, Popeye, pixelated P.I. <laughs> um, <laughs> um but yeah uh all in all i think this is a a thumbs up all around uh sort of a a different game than maybe any of us would normally play and hey that's why we do a book club right guys that's right um so next month's game we'll be playing doom eternal uh this game isn't actually out yet as of this recording but we are gonna get it we are gonna play it we are going to rip and tear our way into the follow-up from 2016's amazing reboot of this venerable series And with that, uh, for Pixelated Playgrounds, I'm Brian Skersha.
1: I'm Josh Kalecki. And I'm Clint Jones.
0: Take care, and keep on solving mysteries.